1: And 365 day returns. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy Norman. I am thrilled to have with us fashion design and culture journalist Kate Finnegan. Kate has been in journalism for over 20 years and lives in Sari, UK. She worked at The Telegraph for 10 years and now works as a freelance writer for titles including The Financial Times, The Observer Magazine, The Gentlewoman and British Vogue. Welcome, Kate. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. Oh, that's so great. We are so excited to have you. You are a massive Agatha Christie fan, I know. And uh, tell me a little bit about how you came to know Agatha Christie.
2: Um, I, felt like, I feel like Agatha Christie was kind of in my life from the beginning because um, my mum and dad were big readers and my dad had a lot of books. Um, they both read a lot, but my dad would display his books in alphabetical order. And Ooh. so and he had a lot of Agatha Christie. So it was just a name that I would be kind of almost crawling past, you know what I mean? And yeah. toddling past along with his collection of Shakespeare and um I mean they weirdly, they were the two names that I remembered. I think they were really big collections. Mm. So um yeah, he was a big reader. My mum's a big reader and he liked having the books around. So Agatha Christie was just a name that I I saw and was aware of from a really young age. I suppose like Jane Austen as well. Everything was lined up so I could go, oh, she wrote so many books. (laughs) Um, And then I started reading Agatha Christie when I was about 11. I remember being in bed and the first two that I read were and then there were none, which wasn't called that at the time. Right. And The Body in the Library. And I kind of, I, I read an interview with um, with Mick Perrin, the writer of Slow Horses, and he said that he went from Enid Blyton to Agatha Christie. And I was like, that's what that's what I did. <laughs> okay. Primary school was at Enie Blyton. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of the British
1: literature pipeline for children. Is I, think, I didn't
2: realise that, but I think, yeah, I think you, you're right. Yeah. And I read T.G. Woodhouse as well. Around right. The time, so they were some classics. I went in for the classics, but Agatha Christie was thrilling to me because I'd never read any any mur- proper murder mysteries. I'd read mystery books, but yeah. nothing that really involved a proper death. And the body in the library was one of the first if not the first I can't quite remember whether it was and then there were none or the body in the library but I do remember being 11 being in bed reading the book and thinking it was absolutely thrilling and quite naughty yeah <laughs> so um that was that was kind of how I started and I just love the fact that she had written so many books so there was this whole library to get through and in the 80s there was also that fabulous adaptation um which I loved and watched kind of religiously and again and again on tv with um Jane Hickson yeah. and I loved the music I loved the atmosphere I love the country villages so I was yeah and um a fan of Agatha Christie and Miss Marple from an early age and did you find
1: that Miss Marple kind of piqued your interest more so than the Poirot books or the Tommy and Tuppence books, or, or were you an equal opportunity Christie fan?
2: Um, I have read the Poirot, but it's Miss Marple that has always stayed with me, mm. and it's um, because she's a woman, because I love the village. I'm not really a big cozy crime reader, to be honest. It's only Miss Marple that I like. Oh, interesting. I, that genre. Um, it's only Miss Marple that I kind of am drawn to. And I don't know whether that's because the TV show impinged it so much in my mind. And Poirot is obviously amazing, but I don't have the same um, connection.
1: Yeah. And and do you have that connection as an adult as well or is it something that you really like left in
2: childhood? I I didn't realize that I left it because my daughter is called Agatha <laughs> and she's called that because of Agatha Christie and because of a character in PG Woodhouse called Aunt Agatha. Right. But so I just love, I love the name. And she's called particularly after those two women who are quite unusual characters, both of them. But yeah, so so I haven't been kind of constantly reading Miss Marple or indeed Agatha Christie for the last 20 years, but they've just always been in my head. So I feel like I, I was, and it wasn't until I went back to the body in the library that I was like, actually, it was a really long time ago that I, I last read this. And there was so much that, I didn't remember, and so much that was still fresh and exciting to mm. me, and, and, and also nostalgic.
1: Yeah. So you've become a writer, albeit a journalist, so obviously a different route to Agatha Christie, but do you feel in any way influenced by her work? Do you hear her voice at all? Is that is she someone who speaks to you as a writer as well as a reader?
2: Not in an obvious way, but yeah. she must have done, because she was in my head from such a a young age Mm. Um, I think her body of work is hugely impressive I kind of root for Agatha Christie do you know what I mean I all all, (laughs) if I see her name I'm like Agatha Christie (laughs) yeah yeah, she's just in my in my blood yeah it's very strange because I don't know I I guess it's her Jane Austen P.G. Woodhouse they're the people that I discovered when I was young and those writers stay with you.
1: They do. They do. I I agree with you with when you say you root for her. It's such an interesting thing because she is the most successful writer of all time after Mm -hmm. Shakespeare. And yet there's something of an underdog quality about her, I think, in kind of a modern context. Um, And so I feel the same way. I She doesn't need to be rooted for. She's done really fine on her own, and yet I feel that way too. It's
2: it. I wonder whether it's because she was classed as kind of pulpy, yeah, for a while. Yeah, because we are so used to seeing battered, battered meaning Mm well-read, but battered nonetheless, um, paperbacks in. Doctor's surgeries or um, uh, charity shops kind of abandoned. Right. Um, And also because, I don't know, sometimes when somebody is so hugely successful and because they're a woman, let's let's face it, that happens, um, they're deemed as not literary or not up there with the greats. When in fact, of course, Agatha Christie is up there with the greats. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think that segues so nicely into talking about Miss Marple because she really shares that with Miss Marple. She is, you know, an older woman who people maybe don't take so seriously, and it's kind of her power. Um, It's her superpower, and um, that's Miss Marple's superpower as well. And the book you chose uh, is The Body in the Library— Which Mm -hmm. I was so excited that you chose that. And I've been saying that about every single book because I love all of the books. But I love The Body in the Library. It's such a classic of Christie's canon. And um, just to talk a little bit about the book before we dive into it in terms of your thoughts on it. The Body in the Library is uh, the second full-length Miss Marple book after Murder at the Vicarage and before The Moving Finger. Um, it was published in 1942, which is the same year as Five Little Pigs, which is a very popular Poirot uh, book and actually one that I really love. Um, and the, Actually, the interesting thing about the body in the library was that it was published 12 years after the first Miss Marple um, and 10 years after the first collection of Marple stories, which was called The 13 Problems, previously the uh, Tuesday Murder Club, Um so there's this huge gap in Agatha Christie's work with Miss Marple, although she wrote 17 Poirot books and a Poirot collection and like a bunch of other books in that period. So she was busy with other stuff, but um you know to me that really speaks to how popular Poirot was at a particular time. Right. And then you know, Marple really captured people's imaginations later on, which is when Christie kind of wrote more of them. She wrote 10 more from 1942 to 1976, and the bulk of those were in the 50s and 60s. Um so interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So it's, it's really fascinating. She kind of has a place in time even within Agatha Christie's work. Mm. Um, mm. wh- what do you think about Miss Marple during those times particularly the 50s and 60s would make people respond to her more so than perhaps earlier
2: oh that's a good question um i'm not sure maybe maybe well when you think about it Mm -hmm. women's roles had changed immensely over that time you're talking about just after the war i suppose and if you Going into the fifties and sixties, women were having a little more freedom. Maybe thinking about aging. I don't know. Um, this question's slightly thrown, mate. Sorry, um, sorry.
1: No, I well, I think I think like in terms of the both the readership and Christy herself. I mean, Christy would have been aging at that time, and I think for her to well, uh, to connect,
2: gonna, yeah. I was going to say that before. Maybe mm-hmm. she needed to be a bit old. So maybe. So maybe she left it. I don't know why she consciously left it, but maybe she found that she was more drawn to Miss Marple as she got older. So mm-hmm. as a writer, she maybe was interested in this idea that older women were not taken seriously. I don't know. I'm I'm completely mm-hmm. guessing, <laughs> but um, that would be that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, that- she was almost writing it as a kind of protector
1: yeah. of older
2: yeah. women or champion of older women.
1: Yeah, we're not irrelevant. We have something to say. Right. Um, and and I also think part of it, I'm sure, she was a jobbing novelist, right? She wrote th- three books a year. So if the Poirot's were selling really well, my sense of her is she was like, go with the Poirot's. You oh know? yeah so I think yeah. part this of it was, a was just yeah. woman. <laughs> yes a sensible woman, a successful woman, a commercially minded woman. so I, I think part of it must have just been as well that when the poros were popular she wanted to ride the wave.
2: right. Um, but also like maybe there, there could have been uh, a confidence issue there as well mm-hmm. um is it is kind of the different side of the same coin Poirot was so big right how could she make another character mm-hmm. as big and as enticing and have the same readership, mm-hmm. um, particularly out of an, a, an older woman from a village. Mm-hmm. But that is the amazing thing about Agatha Christie. She doesn't have one signature detective. She has two detectives who are household names, world famous. Yeah. And one of them is an old lady from a village. I mean, that is the coolest thing in the world. Right. Exactly.
1: I completely agree. So then moving into The Body in the Library, which is a Miss Marple mystery, can you give us a brief synopsis
2: of the book? Sure, sure. I'll try and make it brief. But the book opens with Colonel and Mrs. Bantry waking up one morning at their home in Gossington Manor, which is outside the peaceful village of St. Mary Mead. And they discover that there's a dead body downstairs in their library. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hugely dramatic, obviously. the, The poor woman who's in the library is someone they don't know. She's never been in their house before, to their knowledge. She's wearing a spangly white evening dress and silver sandals, lots of makeup. She's got platinum blonde hair, which is talked about quite a lot in the book. She's exotic, they say, and I think what they mean by exotic is she's working class. (laughs) So it's all a big mystery about why somebody like this would be in their house, never mind dead. Why is she dead? Who is she? How did she end up at Gossington Manor? Who killed her? Mrs. Ban is kind of rather unpleasantly excited by the whole thing and she points out it's just like a murder in a detective story mm. and that kind of the first reference to many sort of self, many self-referential moments where yeah. she talks about this as a, a like a detective story. Right. Um, it's quite interesting there's quite a few easter eggs in that. Yes. She, she she references herself as well doesn't yeah. she? And
1: and actually that's something that um, That Agatha Christie does a lot and one of my favorite parts of this book is if you go back to a Poirot book called Cards on the Table which was published six years before this book um, she has a writer named Ariadne Oliver who has written a book called The Body in the Library
2: that's so clever yeah oh she she knew what she was doing she knew (laughs) (laughs) sorry continue with your synopsis yeah so, yeah, so the colonel calls the police, really disturbed, obviously, and Mrs. Bantry, who, as I said, in enjoying it, calls her village friend, the elderly spinster, Miss Jane Marple, because she's had some previous experience with sleuthing, as they call it, in, in the village with um with another dead body, unfortunately. But um, then they find out that the victim is a, a woman called Ruby Keane, and she's, a dancer from the Majestic Hotel, which is in in a nearby seaside town. And she's been identified as Ruby by her cousin, who also works at the hotel and who comes to Gossington Hall to see where her poor cousin died. And she reveals that other guests at the hotel include an ageing, wealthy businessman called Conway Jefferson, who the Buntries know. Um, and he's staying at the hotel with his quite strange, quite fairly odd extended family. So this is this is Mrs. Bantry's cue to pile down to the to the majestic <laughs> right. with Miss Martha Linto so they can carry on the sleuthing. Um, and then then we discovered that Conway Jefferson was he had a close relationship with Ruby. He'd taken a shine to her over the last year or so because I think they'd been at the hotel before Um, and he was actually about to adopt her. Then we find out that he was going to bequeath her £50,000. So the plot's thickening, but then the body of another poor local girl called Pamela Reeves is found in a burnt out car nearby. So Miss Marple is watching all this, taking all this in, and she's using her quiet powers of observation and amateur psychology, drawing parallels with events and people that she's witnessed in um, St. Mary Mead over the years to start working out what has happened in this case. Um, And she makes a a key discovery, along with very clever observations that the, the... the policeman, miss almost female observations, I would say. But the, the story follows the police rather more than Miss Marple as they try to track down the murderers. Meanwhile, Miss Marple kind of worked it all out in her head. She makes this key discovery, tells the police, unknown to the reader, the reader doesn't know what that, that um, discovery is. Then they engineer this trap and... The gruesome truth about who the murderers are is revealed. Well, that's kind of it.
1: That was such a good synopsis. I can really (laughs) hear you as a writer giving us the synopsis. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: That was perfect.
0: And that's
1: Yeah.
2: It's actually not the most genius murder mystery ever Mm. written, but it's such an interesting and rich read. And it's such a delight to go back to it. Yeah. For lots of reasons, not all of them flattering, I, I'd say, but we can we can discuss that. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's very enjoyable.
1: Yeah. And I mean, as you say, it's not the most genius murder mystery. And I agree with that. Um, but the reason it was written at all was that Christy wanted to write a book where she gave herself these parameters right and the parameters nice. were write a classic body in the library story where the library is conventional and the body is not um, mm. and, and I love that directive and she does that with other stories as well. She, um, she did it with and then there were none. She kind of gave herself a problem to solve um, yeah, And then the one
2: you're on is like the back.
1: It's a very so it's definitely a formula, right? And um yeah. and I think that's really fascinating, but you know what it kind of led me to research a little bit was the other body in the library works that might be out there, because if she wanted to write a classic body in the library, it means there were other body in the libraries. And I personally had never read any others. Um, Well, me neither. I mean, I kind
2: of thought she invented the genre, to be honest.
1: I did, too. And so I I looked into it and I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. My Googling fingers did their work. There was nothing else that I could find. (laughs) I looked as far back as Poe and, you know, um, Auguste Dupin and all these characters, and there is no bodies in any libraries that I found so far. Um, but what really? I did, yeah, but what I did find was one paper, an academic article from 2015, um, from the Australian Library Journal by Rachel Franks, and in it she says, "I quote." The idea of a body in the library, from which this article takes its title, has become entrenched within the crime fiction corpus, particularly those texts that emerged from or in many ways reflect the genre's golden age. Those short stories and novels produced predominantly by British writers between the First and Second World Wars. These works, which traditionally present genteel environments that have been disturbed by the act of murder, are well known for scenes in which libraries provide critical as well as incidental meet settings, um, and I'm going to have a link to that uh, that paper, which is a free PDF download in the episode notes. But the, the rest of the article isn't even about actually about bodies in the library. So that was the only <laughs> that's the only. Can thing I, can I, I just could say take. that I?
2: Can I just say yeah. that I love that you had to do some sleuthing <laughs> to find that. <laughs> I know. about the genre of the body in the library. But, but that's and, really weird because yeah. she does refer to it. On the rereading, you realise that she's talking about a body of work. Right. Because right. there's so many references like we said earlier about oh, this is just like a detective story or she's like, oh, it's too, it's too crazy it's right. too much like a detective story for this right. to be real. Right. There's so many references. So it must have been something that readers were really aware of. Yeah. But maybe they were so rubbish that they just disappeared and it's I only Agatha so. standing on top of the pile who um, yeah. remembered. I think that might
1: be it. I think that, mm, it's just possible that the other kind of progenitors of this were more forgettable um, because yeah. other um, reviews of the book that I read say this is the new classic of the genre. Rather, she's taken a cliche and made it a classic. So yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that's what's happened is she's taken, she took something that was kind of thought of as maybe a bit trashy or campy and turned it into a classic.
2: Wow. Yeah. Another, another achievement. The <laughs> well the done, mystery. Agatha. <laughs> the mystery of the body in the library. Or the I body know. The library in
1: books. I could write <laughs> a whole paper. Um but so I thought that was really fascinating um, in terms of the it, it takes, I think, it gives a little bit of context to why she wrote the book at all. Um, and but you mentioned that when you came back to it, there were things about it that surprised you, both good and bad. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. So the, the, the good kind of thrilling thing that I love, which is not really a nice thing, was just the description, the vivid, vivid description and the out-of-context discovery of poor Ruby's body in the library and the fact that she is this glamorous figure. And when I read that first chapter, I was back in my bed, 11 years old again, feeling absolutely thrilled uh, at this story and the setup because I remember it was the first it was the first time I'd heard the phrase, a platinum blonde. And that was really intriguing to me. I remembered her dress and shoes and makeup, the detail about her nails. And I guess at 11, 12, you know, it's a preteen. And these things were starting to interest and excite me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I guess it was kind of titillating and thrilling to read this book and think about this poor girl in this horrendous situation. And I mean, God, now when I think about how many books I've read where um, an innocent woman is a victim, how many TV shows I've watched, I feel pretty guilty that I I felt so excited about this as an an 11. But I will forgive myself that. But it's such vivid, vivid writing at that point. She's not always the best writer, and she can quite often repeat herself within within paragraphs using sort of the phrase the same phrases nouns, yeah. verbs, so it can it can be a bit sloppy when you're reading it as a as a writer but I agree. Um, but at the same time she knows how to set a scene and she knows how to bring it to life and and there are lots of very vivid characters in it um very very well described yeah and, and quite funny dialogue as well at points and um family relationships that are interesting, domestic relationships, the observations about villagers. She can bring a character to life and put him or her in front of you and you know what that person looks like, what they sound like. And, and, um, and it, it's, really, it's really real. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here
0: from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: The, the negatives. <laughs> well, I mean, it's impossible not to read, sort of, with the point of view of a 21st-century feminist, and feel pretty outraged about the, the the status quo in the in the whole book, really. The, and what what Christie sees as the the status quo and the whole setup of society is actually very enraging to to read about for Mm -hmm. me now but lots to talk about in that and and kind of fascinating and to see how women of a certain class are portrayed unquestioningly unquestioningly by all of the characters and by Christie is very is very interesting um what, what did you think about that
1: I completely agree and I as you were saying you know she brings all these characters to life and she really does I mean nobody creates a character in its fullness I think as quickly as Agatha Christie can the person mm. you never hear about you never can really know what she was like is Ruby Keane uh, oh, who was the victim
2: so horrible to so yeah. horrible about her. nobody says anything in her favor yeah. at all like she deserves to be dead yeah I think the small pool does so I was searching, I was searching for <laughs> some empathy or sympathy from yeah. one of the characters towards Ruby. And I think at one point she says, I do, you know, you feel sorry for the poor dead girl. Yeah. Um, but it's like a fleeting, a fleeting um, moment of sympathy. Yeah. Otherwise, everybody just puts this poor woman down. She's, you know, she's a dancer. So that's against her. She's At one point, someone calls her body it. And says that she it's a poor tawdry body or something horrible like that. Um, And then you know they yeah so they judge her for being a dancer. They judge her for being poor and having um, a less than salubrious upbringing. They then call her a gold digger and um, a kind of arch manipulator. And she's never nobody stands up to her in this book, nobody at all. No. And I'd like to, I'd like to see the book that is written from Ruby's point of view because that point of view is sorely lacking in in this. And you do notice that I think reading it at this point in time, particularly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and even I mean the second victim, Pamela Reeves, I think partially because she's such a young girl. I think she's like twelve. Um, mm-hmm. I think is given a lot more sympathy. We meet her parents who are just absolutely yeah. devastated. I mean, that scene with her her father and mother I think is very moving. It um, is,
2: yeah. And,
1: and and Ruby must have
2: parents. I mean, we we well, never Ruby's got a Ruby's yeah. got a cousin who yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to give the game away, but that cousin never says anything nice about her and um yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) exactly no and and
1: spoilers are allowed by the way you go ahead and spoil it um but she's not a nice cousin she's not a very good cousin um (laughs) no I I agree with you and I it's such a tragic element of the book because it doesn't feel like a comment on Christie's part it feels really like she doesn't care about this character
2: yeah, I think she blames her as well. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean about kind of the status quo. It's like yeah. just that this person is of low character. Yeah, and your heart goes out to her. I mean, it's weird because rereading it again, I, I um, Mark Blake, who is set up as pretty much the murderer from from the beginning. He's given a moment of uh, forgiveness where she talks about, uh, where Miss Marple finds out that he was uh, played quite a brave, heroic part in, in the war. And oh, everybody yeah. has a moment of sympathy and understanding for him. And he's not done anything nice. He dumped Ruby's body in somebody else's house. He wasn't the murderer, but... That's right. But
1: so yeah, he has his moment. Yeah, Basil Blake. <coughs> we're meant to. We're meant to sympathize no, with him. Sorry,
2: Basil Blake. Yeah. More. Well, Mark.
1: Mark is um, is the son-in-law of Jefferson Conway, uh, who ends but, up being but, one of the murderers. Um, but uh, that's, that's right. Everyone else has kind of a moment of sympathy. I will say that Josie, who's also meant to be kind of a a, a poor girl who brought in her cousin, also doesn't mm. get a very nice edit. And is the murderer. <laughs> um, okay, you know, we're, we're
2: putting it out there. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: we're putting it out. I think we're hoping that everyone has read along with us, um, yeah. all, the, our, all of our listeners. Um, and if they haven't, you know, spoilers for the body in the library. <laughs> Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think really the people who are painted with the least sympathetic brushstrokes are those two women. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of and them. It, and
2: it's down yeah. to their class, yeah. their class. And, and the book is classes. Yes. It's just running through it from the very first sentence yeah. to the end. Yeah, um, there, there's there's no remission no. of that. And and
1: something that Miss Marple says quite a lot throughout her books, and she says it in this one. Is she she says whether someone is a lady or a gentleman, yeah. and she does. Yeah. Um, allude to it being kind of an old-fashioned way of thinking. But I believe the way that Agatha Christie writes about that is quite nostalgic. I think she wishes Mm. those were terms that people still used. And I think she finds a lot of value in those terms.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. By the end, you feel almost like she's pretty angry with Ruby herself. Mm. It's, It's odd. She really punishes her, I think, in her portrayal.
1: That's so interesting. What do you mean by
2: punishes her? Just because there's no remittance, it's, mm. she's she's. It's funny because when I was a kid, obviously I didn't pick. I, I I don't think I would have picked up on that at all. I just would have gone along with the story, right? And I saw and I actually remembered Ruby as this glamorous starlet.
0: Mm. Um,
2: I don't know whether that's how she's portrayed in the TV adaptation because I haven't gone back to that, but. Um, and that might have coloured my view, but from I remember reading the book and thinking she was almost like a, a heroine. Right. Um, but that's not how she's portrayed at all. And and it's I I just think Christy almost suggests that she deserves to die. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't like to think that about agatha Christie, But
1: no, but you, but you know that's my no- takeaway. I agree. And it, it is something that's a recurring thing with Christy where she'll use this phrase and it's it's not said by her. It's said by usually a detective or some man who's found a woman murdered. He'll say, she got herself murdered.
2: Oh yeah. Um,
1: why did well, she have to get herself murdered in my whatever, my library?
2: But um, Rebecca, people still say that on TV shows now. They do. Then, now, don't they? And yeah. that's kind of one of my problems with a lot of these um, a lot of a lot of shows. I think it's changing now, but um, yeah, yeah, women have been portrayed, and also it's not just in in books and, and dramas; it's in courtrooms, yes. <laughs> real courtrooms yeah. throughout the world. Yeah. Women have been accused of um, asking for it, yeah, so so many hundreds of times that it's almost uh, become you know it became acceptable, but. Yeah, you see it. You see that written in in this book. Yeah. On on the on the upside, in in terms of feminism, Miss Marple kind of rescues the day or or kind of restores the balance a little bit. Because she is an aging woman and she is presented as intelligent and cunning in her own way and she she solves the mystery
1: yeah yeah I think so, that's that's one of the reasons I continue to come back to Christy's work is because right. there there's so much nuance to it she holds so many views at once and yeah. she has these terrible sexist characters sometimes and you know formulas that i think result in like dehumanization particularly of women and of murder victims generally but then she also has a character like miss marple who is so unique in her womanhood and in her age and in the way that she goes about solving mysteries and the way she's kind of uses her invisibility as this uh superpower to walk around and figure out what's going on um it's a it's uh
2: nuanced there's nuance there it's nuanced and it's it's genius yeah. and it's flip, flipping the stereotype mm-hmm. um in a way that she doesn't do with ruby but yeah there's um and that and that, it's kind of commented on quite a lot by the different characters she's referred to as a, an old spinster so many times yeah it's, you know it's insulting but <laughs> Um, she can't be seen as anything else by right. by anybody. But they do give her respect right. and they do actually call on her. So Henry Clithering, who comes in as kind of an almost like a consultant, um uh policeman or detective or investigator on, on this on this case, um, has met or knows um Miss Marple um and he really respects her. And, and tells the rest of the policemen, of which there are many, too many policemen. So, so many, many policemen. policemen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know what they're all doing, but Miss Marvel <laughs> yeah. wipes the floor with them. Yeah, but um, I think it's him who one of the policemen say. I don't know if it's Sir Henry Clithering or not. I can't quite remember. But they, he says that very sharp. These old ladies sometimes are shrewd. Put their finger on the vital spot. Yeah, and and the other character says, "Women's intuition," and they say, "No, no, she doesn't call it that. It's specialised knowledge." Right. And, um, it's interesting because she she draws on all these um, anecdotes and characters and um, episodes that have happened in the village to draw her conclusion. Uh, she draws she draws her conclusions from. Um, other behaviors and characters that she's witnessed in the village.
1: Yeah. And and what she also does and what she does in most of her books is she figures it out long before anybody else does and she will not tell them because she has a very strong moral conviction that until you have proof, even when she knows it psychologically, she knows who the murderer is, she doesn't have the proof yet. Yeah. And she I mean, she doesn't necessarily say it in these words in this particular book, but she says it in other books that if you make uh, an accusation against someone and it's wrong, it will ruin their life. So even though I know I have to be sure by getting the evidence and that's why they go through this crazy thing at the end of the book where she has they have this whole setup so that the murderer Mm. will try to murder Mm. uh, Conway Jefferson Jefferson Conway. Conway Jefferson.
2: It's um, Conway, Jefferson. Conway yeah, Jefferson. Yeah, but I keep making that mistake. Uh, yeah.
1: So, um, so you know, so they set this whole thing up so that there's absolutely no doubt.
2: And it's, it's very Scooby Doo that moment. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, but it's it's something that happens quite a lot in the Marples in particular, because she's she seems to have a real fear of sending the wrong person to the gallows, which, I mean, they were hanging people at this time. Yeah, so it, well,
2: she, she does say that she's very glad that um, Mark is yeah, going to right. be hung. that's she does. Yeah. She doesn't put any punches about that. No,
1: big fan of... of uh, Capital punishment. Capital punishment. Yeah. <laughs> Looking
2: forward to both those people going down. <laughs> I
1: know, and, and in fact, you can see in the books, as Christy writes, because during the period in which she wrote, eventually capital punishment was outlawed, and they kind of refer to it like nostalgically in the oh, later god. books. Oh. Well, she'd be like, "Well, in in the olden days, they would have hung him." You know, it's like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah. She's, so. um, she's old school. She is old school. She is old school. <laughs>
1: but how then? How do you? How do you? Kind of marry that with the Marple character, because she is old school in kind of her thinking and Christy is old school in thinking, but then you have this really fascinating take on what an old woman is capable of. Um, yeah.
2: She, flip, she flips it. And as you say, she, she's very nuanced in, mm-hmm. in, in the um, character of, of, Miss Marple. So there's a few things going on at once. And, yeah. um And then drawing on, on psychology I think is really interesting, and she kind of talks about it not in any kind of academic way. She's always talking about it in um, a very sort of intuitive way. Yeah. But psychology—the word—I think the word psychology does come up, and um, it's just interesting to see. And obviously, everybody else thinks it's interesting. She's almost like a kind of experiment taking place in front of our eyes, Miss Marple, because everyone's fascinated that this old woman can be so alert, can be so clever, can be so intelligent mm-hmm. and can work this this thing out. Yeah. And it's like, oh what a what a um, a crazy glitch in the universe this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but yeah. then then there are a few references to you know older women being older women being intelligent, like um I mean, huge generalisations. Actually, I think Sir Henry Clithering at one point says um, he does say women are eternally interested in marriages.
1: Yeah, that's or, right.
2: Or especially elderly single women. <laughs> so they yeah. they they're, they're kind of giving her her due and then taking it away as well, a little a little bit. Yeah, you know, they they never forget that she's a spinster.
1: Yeah. That's that's true, and you know the person who has the most faith in her is her friend Dolly Bantry.
2: Oh, Dolly's like her biggest champion. I mean, yeah. I have a few problems with Dolly because she's such a huge snob, and she's so so thrilled that there's a dead woman in her house. I know but... it's so <laughs> ghoulish. <laughs> it's sick. Yeah, but um, but yes, yeah, she does champion uh, Jane and and tells everyone how marvelous she is all the time, which is very sweet.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah, she is a good friend, Dolly, <laughs> despite, despite yeah, the ghoulish behaviour. Um,
2: yeah, so there's a little bit of sisterhood there. Not much, I would say, in this book, but a tiny, a tiny glimpse.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: And um, I mean,
1: based on kind of your, you had a lot of pros, you had a lot of cons with the book. Is it something that you feel like you felt good about going
2: back to? Um, I'm delighted I went back <laughs> to it. I'm completely thrilled and I found rereading it and talking about it with you just to be so enjoyable. Um, I'm 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 really glad that I've had an excuse to go back to it. And I will I'm gonna read and then there were None again now. Fantastic. And I I will read, uh, reread. The Marples, I think, yeah, um, because I just want to see how she progresses with it and remember what happened. Because I don't think I ever read them in any order. It might be interesting to do that. Mm. Um, I was really, and I do really actually want to re-watch the BBC 80s adaptation with Jane Hickson because she really blew my mind as, as a kid. And I think, you know, she, she runs so many fastest, I think, for yes. that that every series that she was in and she she did I don't know maybe 13 films or something like that (laughs) and the way she spoke and the way she looked Mm -hmm. was really um it was very subtle yeah and it was very powerful and so I do really want to go back to that and and the music I don't know if you were a fan of that series I love the music oh my god yeah it's so charming. It's so charming. I played it again the other day and was like back there on a Sunday night in my family home. Yeah. It's, um, getting it's excited about seeing a woman murdered. Oh, God,
1: I know. And I agree with you. I think Joan Hickson's portrayal in that series is is actually very different than the Miss Marple on the page. Uh, and yeah. it's a lot harder. It's a lot sharper. And yeah. uh, I love it. I think... She, the what she did with that character is actually so beautiful and so watchable. And I felt the same yeah. way about David Suchet's Poirot, he changes him in ways mm-hmm. that are much more enjoyable to watch. Um, yeah, very, and,
2: very human, humanizing,
1: yeah, very humanizing, exactly right. So, um, I, I agree, and I, I would love to go back and watch those as well.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe we should do a big screening <gasps> that would be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Drink tea and discuss murder.
1: Event, yeah, we could do like a live podcast event and watch The Body in the Library and <clears throat> and then talk about it. That would be so fun. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um thank you
1: so much for being here today, Kate. This was just so much fun and it's such a it was such a great choice of book and you had so much to say about it. And I feel like we could have gone on for probably another hour. Um, I think we can probably write a thesis now. About, <laughs> I know. Well, there haven't the been enough. There haven't been enough theses on Agatha Christie, clearly, because when I was doing my research, there was just nothing coming up.
2: That's so bizarre. I know. Yeah. Well, we've got things to say. We've got a lot to say. <laughs>
1: Academics Thank reach out so to much. us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Kate. It was such a pleasure, and um, and I can't wait to do hopefully another marple with you sometime soon. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> you're so welcome kate where can our listeners find you where would you like to be found
2: oh my god um nowhere probably the place i'm most obvious is, is on instagram okay. um, kate finnegan underscore underscore um yeah that's where that's where i lurk
1: that's where you lurk you have a great instagram actually i recommend that people go check it out because it you often show some of the stuff you've been working on and um and, and are there any publications you want to point people to?
2: Oh, yeah, you can find me. Sorry, yeah, it's not all about me. It's about the publications. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug, plug. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'm quite often write for the Financial Times yep. and How to Spend It, where I'm a contributing editor. Uh, the Gentlewoman magazine, which comes out twice a year, one of my uh, favorite
1: magazines.
2: I love The Gentlewoman. Oh, good. yeah. Oh, good, Rebecca, yeah, it's a lovely one. Yeah. Um, and and the Observer, um, yeah, and various various publications.
1: Yeah, just small cottage industry. Haven't heard of them, type of publications. <laughs> <laughs> um.
2: Thank you, Rebecca.
1: Thank you so much, Kate. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our producer Kate Kershaw and our sound engineer Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at T and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Next episode, we'll be reading Five Little Pigs. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both.